further packing case inventiveness, erected a shed to house the tank. As West Base discovered, the narrow track width of vehicles designed for use on land saw the tank and gun tractor sink in local snows. Ad hoc lateral extensions to the tank tracks didn't improve matters, and Black determined the vehicle should be retroed to the continental US at the earliest opportunity. Some genius shipped the pool table, and this served as a key source of recreation in off hours, and, fitted with a plywood decking cover, as a workbench in the machine shop during the working day. Biologist Herwell McClure Bryant and ornithologist Carl Eklund established a taxidermy shed out of one of the crates used to ship the Curtis Condor's wings. During winter months, when few animals remained to catch and mount, they rendered blubber in the space, making dog pemmican for the coming sledging season by mixing the purified fat with commercially purchased dog food and cutting standard portions from the resulting giant cylinders of chumpy goodness. I know West-based cook Sig Gutenko learnt to make pemmican from Dr. Dana Komen, and I recently saw a postcard featuring Little America 3 and cancelled aboard the bear, sent from the former to the latter, but I don't know if Bird brought Komen in as a dietary consultant prior to the expedition, or if Gutenko sought the Little American veteran out, or if it's all just a big coincidence. Whatever the case, the expedition saved money and ship space by making at least its dog pemmican on site. Biologist Bryant found the skewers generally waiting around the blubber hut, accommodating and efficient skeleton cleaners, and left several specimens out in the open for their assistance in preparing the material he intended taking north with him. Winter housing for the dogs comprised wooden crates reinforced with chicken wire and snowproofed with canvas valances, spaced to keep the dogs from fighting and allowed to become snowed over as the winter came on. The dog handlers kept the trackways open and fed and exercised their charges as per the habits of Little America. The dog accommodations gradually became a series of snow tunnels set against the foot of the glacier. The British Grahamland Expedition Hut seems to have received some use, but mostly as an escape and recreation site. In those few pictures I've seen of Black's personnel therein, everyone's wearing their parkas, so it doesn't look like anyone fired up the Arga and perhaps no one outside of Scandinavia or the British upper middle classes would recognise what an Arga is. I only know about them because of the taxonomic research I've been doing as part of my initiative to follow Lemmy's instructions. They look a bit like a twin tub washing machine, and given the time they take to build up a head of hot metal, there's a chance that Americans did recognise it and did successfully light it, but departed Antarctica before it made any great difference in the room temperature. Harry Darlington records celebrating his 21st birthday at the BGLE hut. Bird departed aboard the Bear and was back in the USA before the month of March was out, and where the British ambassador made his disquiet known at the State Department over Richard Black's flag raising, the State Department kept quiet as to whether or not the activity held any political import, and the British ambassador decided that was better than a yes it does, and let the matter lie. The North Star departed Nini Fjord on the 21st of March, heading once more for Valparaiso, with examples of Emperor, Adelie, Chinstrap and Gentoo penguins penned in on the weather deck, though I don't know for whom. I know George Gibbs collected penguins for the Smithsonian, 
but he was crewing aboard the bear. I can only go on silent footage captured in a home movie made by one of the ship's crew, also featuring a seaman grinding up fish fillets and hand-feeding the resulting protein meal to the reluctant brush-tail specimens and the over-eager emperors. Kenneth Bertrand, writing in Americans in Antarctica, 1775-1948, notes one live Ross seal and five live crab-eater seals going north in company with the penguins, but that only three of the emperor penguins survived their time on the ships, going on display at the National Zoological Park in Washington. The inability to traverse the Antarctic hinterland to the extent the rhetoric around the snow cruiser led everyone involved in the expedition to expect took the wind out of the expedition's sails. A project that might have seen the USA, by so far outstripping all previous travel, surveying and scientific research carried out in the South by so many orders of magnitude, in a position to claim the entire continent, with little room for anyone to gainsay them. Permanent bases in the East and West, and at least a year at the Pole, would make all previous efforts look pretty shabby. Instead, the USASAE established two bases in territory already pretty well known, and claimed by other nations, and without any coordinated scientific program to give even some conceptual connection between the disparate outposts lying over a thousand nautical miles apart as the skewer flies. Although it featured in his orders from the President, birds not sticking around seemed to set the mood and the mode for those expeditioners left to winter, and the United States Antarctic Service first project was a fizzer, where everyone involved hoped for a firework. Bird trumpeted expedition achievements to the press, but the executive committee were left underwhelmed by the paucity of the operations Bird could report. A depot laying flight from East Base, and several survey flights but no ground truthing from West Base, and the sustained absence of a coordinated scientific program could leave the United States Antarctic Service with their asses hanging in the breeze if Congress took a dislike to the project. Commander English highlighted that no scientific program seemed underway at East Base, and without a coordinated plan, anything that did get moving there must necessarily prove an ad hoc and independent affair without careful coordination with West Base, itself requiring sufficient radio traffic between the sites that anyone listening in from outside the program must come to the conclusion that the whole affair was a poorly put together shower, which it was. Bird tried to demure, claiming it wasn't a matter for the committee to concern themselves with, but Commander English wasn't buying this rich boy gets off the hook by playing with words nonsense. Bird was on the hook. Bird tried to demure by suggesting the committee consult with Black, Wade and Seipel, but with several months of potentially coordinated data already lost, English countered that the scientific program should be drawn up and sent south by radio at the hurry-up. Outside listeners be damned. The future of the United States Antarctic Service hung in the balance. The Senate passed funding for a further 250,000 US dollars for a second year of operations, but the bill stalled in the House of Representatives. Byrd played the martyr card for the press, citing the dangers faced by his poor men if he couldn't afford to sail south to their relief the next Austral summer. Roosevelt played to the defence of the Western Hemisphere angle, but the funding remained in limbo. Adding to the quagmire nature of the project, the Department of the Interior began agitating to wash its hands of the United States Antarctic Service, 
finding the edifice too much dominated by naval interests, despite the DOI holding responsibility for its budget, and too great a shambles overall for the department to want to remain associated with. They had business afoot trying to bring Alaska on board as the 49th state, and didn't want Bird's circus causing them any more grief than it already had. Bird wanted shot of it too. The USASA wasn't playing out as gloriously as he'd hoped, and the fall of Paris and the apparently imminent invasion of Britain gave Bird an excuse to call for Roosevelt to wind up the United States Antarctic Service. Call me a cynic if you will, but I can't imagine Bird singing that particular song if he knew the snowcruiser was making sound progress toward the pole. If things were playing out better, I think Bird would be singing, We must be resolute and carry through on our stated plans in spite of what's happening in Europe. The expedition he threw together was, once more in Bird's showman's eyes, a one-trick pony, and that trick, the snow cruiser, laid an even bigger egg than advanced bases double yoker in 1935. Roosevelt didn't see things Bird's way. The President remained determined to see US interests in Antarctica served by the toehold that West and East bases represented, even in light of the unfolding tragedy in Europe. Roosevelt seems to have imagined that when peace eventually returned, nations with a stake in Antarctica might see ceding their claims as a means to placate the victors, and while he couldn't scry who that might be, he felt confident the USA would, at least, not come out of the situation as the vanquished. The United States remained neutral. Pro-Nazi people and organisations didn't see it that way, and advocated hard that the USA should cease aiding the nations already at war with the Third Reich, and willing to deal with anyone who came to the Antarctic table. By holding ground in Antarctica, Roosevelt maximised US leverage in any post-war negotiations regarding that less viciously contested space. Unfortunately for US interests in Antarctica, Roosevelt's political capital needed spending on other fronts. A November 1940 election loomed, and with the nation split on how to react to war in Europe, he couldn't push the funding for a second year of Antarctic operations any harder than he already pushed it. West and East bases became single winter occupations. Where the United States Antarctic Service set out to trounce every other national endeavour in Antarctica, it ran its tanks dry as far less than it might have been. The United States Antarctic Service itself would go on hiatus, and to that end, Byrd agitated that the bases should be mothballed rather than dismantled, and that as much material as possible be left in place for future occupations. Future occupations he might lead, I might add. The US Navy agreed to let the Curtis Condors stay on site, where they couldn't continue to haunt the sleep of the procurement officers, and the Armour Institute agreed the snow cruiser could stay on site, so long as some future expedition brought it home at the earliest possible opportunity. At West Base, Paul Seipel oversaw experiments into the development of and recovery from frostbite and developed his model for wind chill. Wind chill is the phenomenon whereby ambient temperature and apparent temperature and its effects on a warm-blooded animal lie at odds because of wind-aided convection cooling. If you operate in minus 20 degrees Celsius on a still day, you can get about in shirt sleeves, but as soon as the air starts moving, the thermal energy lost from your shirt sleeve exposed arms offers an apparent temperature lower than the minus 20 degrees Celsius. 
Paul Seipel and Charles Passell ran an experiment measuring the rate of cooling imposed on a fixed volume of water suspended near the base anemometer by different wind states and ambient temperatures. The data working into a model and the model providing a formula by which to calculate the perceived temperature based on the temperature as measured by thermometer and the wind speed. While many such formulae now exist, and that derived from Seipel and Passel's data has been recalculated over time based on more reliable data collected in less trying circumstances, the basis of all wind chill calculations stem from this simple but groundbreaking work, and wind chill factors are of interest to anyone working at low temperatures, though whether they are of utility in measuring the likelihood of a person experiencing frostbite or hypothermia, or simply a way of gauging comfort, has come into question in more recent decades. I gave Paul Seipel a lot of stick for his bird worship and Boy Scout mode in past episodes, but he grew up to be a good scientist capable of designing and executing a line of inquiry in trying conditions to answer practical questions with general applicability. Nice work, Boy Scout. I'm warming to you. Concurrent research into frostbite saw Dr. Frazier measuring the time it took for exposed facial skin to show the white spot of incipient tissue freezing under a variety of ambient conditions and degrees of physiological adaptation. Those personnel tasked with outdoor duties, generally developing dehydrated skin that could withstand cold exposure without damage far longer than those whose work kept them indoors. Dr. Frazier also measured red blood cell density in a monthly series of samples spanning the period immediately prior to sailing through to November 1940 while Dr. Lockhart measured basal metabolic rates and blood sugar changes over a three-month period of acclimation after arrival at the barrier. A proposed Aurora Observatory at the Rockefeller Mountains to be staffed through the winter dark, allowing concurrent observations to provide altitude estimates of auroral activity, never eventuated as the winter closed in before the equipment and stores could be positioned. Two tractor and tank mediated forays to establish temporary observatories a lesser distance from Little America 3 for two week spells allowed some observations and altitude estimates, though the low temperatures experienced at the satellite camps limited simultaneous data gathering as the cameras stopped working as they cold soaked. In August, the aircraft were dug out of their winter cocoons and depot work began to support the sledging season's extended survey parties. Two tractor-trained forays to the Rockefeller Mountains established the 105-mile depot, caching dog food at intervals along the trail. Sledging kicked off in October with five parties pushing east. The Ford Rangers party comprised biologist Perkins, physiologist Lockhart, dog driver Colombo, and incorporated meteorologist Harrison Richardson from the Pacific Coast party once they reached the 105-mile depot. Physicist Roy Fitzsimmons to establish a seismograph monitoring station near the 105-mile depot. Griffith and Asman followed in the tank, towing five tons of materials, fuel and food behind them, destined for the depot and Fitzsimmons accommodations. A second mechanised party comprising Boyd and Ferranto towed more food and fuel sleds behind the T-20 tractor. The geological party featured Lawrence Warner and Charles Purcell to do the rock looking at, Lorraine Wells to run the Met Obs, and Harold Gilmore as recorder and dog driver. The Pacific Coast Survey Party set out with cadastral engineer Leonard Berlin to do the surveying, Jack Bursey as dog driver and radio operator, Moulton as photographer and dog driver, 
and Harrison Richardson on MetOBS, though, as mentioned earlier, he swapped into the Edsel Ford party at the 105-mile depot. All teams rendezvoused at the depot, and all hands turned to getting Fitzsimmons seismic station established. The path to the selected site featured steep grades and crevasses, precluding mechanical hauling. So it was all mammals to the harnesses, and several days of hard yards to get the materials in place at the foot of Mount Franklin. The three sledging parties carried on together for a further 130 miles, supported by Boyd and Ferranto's tractor hauled load, which cached food along the way for the sledge's return. The destination, Mount McKinley. On November the 13th, all present climbed a peak at the southern end of the range, where Berlin flew the US flag and everyone signed a witnessing document claiming the region on the behalf of their nation. The paperwork went into a jar which Berlin deposited in a can established there in 1934 by Paul Seipel and his sledging companions. Berlin set a brass United States General Land Office plaque in the bedrock and made triangulations and astronomical observations sufficient to fix the location to degrees, minutes, seconds and tenths of seconds of latitude and longitude. The tractor party returned to Little America 3 while the sledging parties went their separate ways. On reaching base, Ferranto and Clyde Griffith immediately set out for Mount McKinley once more, hauling more aviation fuel and food to the depot and setting themselves up as a remote meteorological station and radio relay post for several weeks. A subsequent radiogrammed press release ruffled feathers at home as Berlin announced his claiming of the area in accordance with his Department of the Interior SOPs, but in contravention of the expedition orders to keep such matters under wraps so as to not excite international interest. Berlin's ground survey at and beyond Mount Grace McKinley acted as control points for photographic survey flights further to the east and the south, and Moulton and Bursey's dogs carried the party further into Marie Birdland to survey mountains in the Hal Flood Range. Three of the mountains they quantified cadastrally now bear the trio's names. Mount Berlin, knocking Bird's Uncle Hal's name off the peak, but leaving it in place on the range overall. The trio spent 83 days on the trail and covered 1,200 miles, pipping the record set by Paul Seipel's trail party during Bird's previous expedition. The three sledging parties extended the ground control and survey triangulation far into Marie Birdland, each concentrating on their leader's primary interest. The withdrawal comprised a reverse of the process of extension. The tractor party come met OBS and radio relay outpost, packing up and following the dogs back to the 105 mile depot. All mammals then turning to in order to dismantle and retrieve Fitzsimmons' seismic camp. And then everyone heading back to Little America 3, the final party arriving home by the 7th of January. The tractor team travelling the final 90 miles in reverse which is a trick the Huskies never managed to learn. Meanwhile, the stagger wing was used to continue the cosmic ray measurements and to survey the ice conditions near Little America 3. The Condor didn't get flying until October, but was put to use in photographic survey flights extending over the tracks of the sledging parties to extend the survey terrain beyond the footslogged Maximus. One of the flights to Marie Birdland overtaxed the airframe and the aviation contingent grounded the Condor for two weeks up until November. Further photographic surveys occupied the big plane through December, 
but the Condor's utility came to an end on January 3rd. Flying a support mission of tractor fuel and dog fuel in the form of seal meat for the trail teams, still making their return from Marie Birdland, the starboard engine caught fire shortly after McCoy took off, having landed the gasoline for the tractor. Alert that he, Giles and Seipel were clipping along at altitude in a machine largely made of kindling and doped fabric, and still carrying enough gasoline in its tanks to give explosive interest to the aforementioned flammables, McCoy cut the fuel supply to the more exciting engine and put the Condor into a dive, these actions robbing the flames of two sides of the fire triangle, and made a landing alongside the trail, the engine smoking but no longer posing a danger of imminent immolation. The engine blew a piston through the cylinder head, indicating against further use. That and the whole on fire thing. The stagger wing flew out to stage the seal meat out to the dog teams, about 10 miles away at that point, and then to collect the aircrew and the scientific specimens the Condor previously collected from the trail party, and flew everyone back to Little America 3. The Condor abandoned, having become surplus to requirements of first the Navy and then to the denizens of West Base, the local terrain offering no ready scope for towed salvage or for getting the spare engine out to the machine. Through the darker months over at East Base, the residents entertained themselves in the customary Antarctic fashion with cards, records, books, but no booze. Almost. Harry Darlington, the 19-year-old general hand, somehow smuggled ashore 22 bottles of whiskey and cached them in a snowburn without anyone else catching on. He gave the game away with regular forays into the darkness for no apparent reason, carrying a G-pole. Someone with past Little America experience recognised the behavioural pattern from the sounding rod excursions made by the thirstiest expeditioners. Someone followed Darlington into the dark and later stole 14 of the remaining bottles, caching them in three of their own depots. The game firmly afoot, more people making more G-pole soundings found these caches and where Darlington cursed the thieves who departed with his stash, those thieves cursed the second tier of thieves who depleted their stashes. Those responsible for the secondary thefts showed their hand by getting very drunk for a very brief period. The midwinter festivities coincided with crook weather and one of the radio masts blew down onto the meteorology tower, prompting some cold and hard yards gadgeting the apparatus upright and serviceable again in the middle of the long dark. Antarcticans get on with that sort of thing because they have to, but contemplating handling bent and cold-soaked steel framing in strong winds and the sort of half-light your eyes try and fail to make the most of, from my comfy chair in a warm hut, leaves me cold, so to speak. In July, Black tasked two teams of 25 dogs apiece to hauling the remaining wing crates from the Curtis Condor up the glacier to establish an aviator shack at the Ersatz airfield. During the subsequent downhill run, one of the sleds overran its dog team and one of the dogs, Kim, became snarled in the slack centre trace. When the load came back on the trace, the dog's body took the strain and the tension squeezed the life out of the unfortunate doggo. The aviator's shack became home for Ash Snow and William Pullen, the pair on hand to maintain and fly the aircraft as needed and to keep it from getting snowed under or blown away as the weather dictated. The aircraft didn't fly much through the dark months, just a few reconnaissance missions and some depot caching up the Wordy Glacier in May. Landing at the elevated airfield, the Condor's tail skid, 
tail control surfaces and control cables received some damage due to large sastrugi and the aviators had to fabricate replacement parts from the stock materials to hand. Between repairs, low light and poor weather, the flying program didn't get moving again until August. Dog teams kept in trim and trained a harness by regularly hauling gasoline, coal and food up to the airfield to keep the machine and the monkeys caged there going. Unable to depot as much material and stores as hoped in the pre-winter months, the sledging program slated for the coming summer incorporated a lot of flexibility. Seven sledge teams comprising 55 dogs began working depots up the northeast glacier in early August. Don Hilton narrowly averted disaster when his lead dog decided it didn't like this uphill pulling caper and turned the team about face. Gathering speed and not heeding Hilton's instructions, the ensemble barreled toward a scarp that would see the lot sail into open space and gravity-mediated doom, but Hilton, hanging onto the G-pole like his life depended on it, because it did, hauled on the brake and dug his crampons into the surface and brought the team up short of impending canine splatter. The seven sledges established mile-high camp at the 5,000-foot-high plateau after hurricane winds pinned them on sight and prevented any further progress, everyone heading back to Stonington Island. The return journey marked by slow progress as the teams roped in to make ground in newly unfamiliar terrain, the storm having scoured away a large number of previously sound crevasse bridges. A night on a glacier between gaping ice moors listening to the rumbling quakes from below and the avalanches from above didn't settle anyone's nerves and it was a much relieved cadre of monkeys and dogs made it back to east base on the 13th. Another attempt to double and advance the depot materials headed up the northeast glacier in September and saw the teams facing lower temperatures requiring relaying to make any headway. Again the conditions precluded carrying material further than mile high camp. Some of the dogs were allowed out of their harnesses on the descent as the sledges ran too fast and risked overrunning and smushing them. But this freedom also posed a previously unrecognised danger in that excited canines barrelling downhill on ice and snow don't necessarily choose a sensible route and one dog died from gravity and reckless canine enthusiasm. Biologist Bryant made regular forays to Red Rock Ridge making a study of the penguin colony and collecting lichens. He managed to grab sample Marguerite Bay Benthos and tried to trap and angle for fish, but the ice conditions precluded a rigorous submarine sampling program. During a third trip up the glacier to flag the route and depot food, Paul Knowles went into a crevasse deep enough that only black emptiness showed beyond the 300 feet the light could reach. Fortunately, Knowles, Musselman and Darlington roped in on their ascent and the geologist's colleagues retrieved him from the abyss. In another new miss, Glenn Dyer went through a crevasse bridge while skiing on his own up the northeast glacier. His skis wedged in the crevasse crossways and prevented his falling to his death, but he hung upside down from them for the better part of a whole day before his colleagues came across him and rescued him. He carried frostbite scars on his legs for the rest of his life, but otherwise walked away unharmed. In a third near miss, Glenn Dyer led a sledging party up the glacier to make depots and noticed his barometer needle actively on the move. Either we are climbing very, very fast or we are in for a whale of a storm because the air pressure is dropping so rapidly, 
he explained to his companions, hoping to spur them to push to the summit at the hurry-up. The wind came on as they got their tents up, three of the small trail tents for the five men. The blizzard tore one tent to shreds, and the occupants relocated to the tent of their neighbours. This tent also shredded in the building storm, so the five men huddled in the last tent, aware that an encore shredding would leave them with just a few minutes to live. They wrote final letters home and spent three days listening to the storm test the canvas. In the calm after the big blow, they emerged to find the dogs all fine in their snow cocoons, but the landscape snowblasted into tortuous shapes they struggled to negotiate with the sledges in spite of their eagerness to get back to East Base. The Condor flew more stores and equipment out to the summit of the Wordy Glacier and to the foot of Mount Batterby in King Charles VI Sound, but only having one aircraft prompted an extremely cautious approach to deploying it. If anything went wrong with the Condor while it was at its maximum range, suddenly at least three expedition members were stranded far away with no dog team and slim chances of getting back. The Condor only flew when the weather forecast showed perfect conditions for an extended period, and when the mechanics gave the machine the big tick on the service log. The East Base Condor, in spite of the travails arising from operating from a lumpy glacier among mountains in a part of Antarctica where downdrafts abound, experienced a more genteel working schedule than its Ross Sea counterpart, flying lighter loads shorter distances on fewer occasions. Even so, many of its flights proved fraught affairs, one of the most notable scrapes occurring after caching supplies on the Waddell side of the Peninsula Divide. The aircraft hit a severe downdraft and lost height amid a blinding cloud of snow, the pilots unsure of anything other than what their instruments told them and expecting horrendous crunchy doom at any moment. The aircraft levelled out in clear air lower than anyone should feel happy about while over mountainous terrain, and everyone not in the cockpit was ordered aft to trim the plane for a nail-biting full-power climb away from the crinkly, rock-filled lower margins of the atmosphere. Planning to use the Condor to jump sledge teams over the areas already explored and mapped by the British Graham Land expedition, east-based dog drivers and carpenter Charbonneau devised a crate system allowing eight dogs, their driver and their sledge to fit inside the aircraft. The crates were built just large enough to house two dogs lying nose to tail. Unable to stand or turn, and paired in the least volatile possible combinations, this was deemed sufficient to preclude fighting and dogs wandering around the fuselage and messing with the centre of gravity or getting under the pilot's feet. A test drive saw the two most troublesome dogs packed in a crate and driven around the camp for two hours on the gun tractor and revealed no shortcomings in the scheme, but poor weather through most of October precluded using the Condor to place the sledge parties at previously untrod trailheads, and the inventive scheme never went into use. Plateau Weather Station saw Lurk and Palmer taking Metobs at 5,500 feet above sea level through November and December, though getting them in place proved the mission all its own. With help from Musselman, Healy, Darlington and Hilton, and their respective dog teams, the high-altitude observers hauled their equipment, stores and double-layered, extra-strength tent up the northeast glacier for three days, establishing radio contact with East Base and coordinating their schedule with the meteorologists at sea level. They built snow walls around the three sides of the tent receiving the bulk of the prevailing winds, but found they had to up stumps and shift their accommodations every week, 
as the heat inside their tiny cocoon melted the snow beneath them and left them lying in an uncomfortably lumpy damp patch on the glacier. A September depot flight couldn't get airborne due to fresh snow at the glacial airfield. The six inches of powder slowing the takeoff run and preventing the Condor getting aloft with its heavy load. Instead, all personnel on base were given a familiarisation flight, spending an hour and a half aloft in two shifts, seeing their home and its surrounds from perspectives normally reserved for the aviators and associated surveyors and trail leaders. Sound move that. Always good to have a bird's eye view of your locale, if it's available. On the 10th of September, Knowles, Hilton and Darlington, supported by Musselman and Healy, began a sledge journey to depot stores for their proposed examination of the western shore of the Weddell Sea, but turned back due to inclement weather before carrying the cache as far as hoped. A second attempt took the Weddell Sea party closer to their final goal, but didn't advance the stores further than previously, lying at the head of a gully they named Bill's Gulch. Knowles went into a deep crevasse, but the team were roped in and Hilton and Darlington made the rescue with, by now, well-practiced confidence. A final reconnaissance as the sledging weather stabilised saw Dyer, Knowles and Eckland scout routes to and from Nini Fjord, seeking an inland route in case sea ice conditions blocked the route home from Red Rock Ridge or Charles VI Inlet. They cached excess stores on the Nini Glacier and returned to East Base with their intelligence. After a lot of loose planning and contingency caching, the final big push routes and goals coalesced. Ronnie, Eckland, Knowles, Musselman, Healy, Hilton and Dyer prepped for their longest outings. Labelled the Southern Trail Party, the Septuplet and their 55 dogs departed Stonington on the 6th of November. The party comprised three elements. Paul Knowles and Don Hilton after depoting material strategically on the outward journey to lighten their sledge as they went, would start their return to Stonington Island after 200 miles, ceding their excess stores to the two remaining sledging elements. Dyer, Musselman and Healy were to carry forward another 200 miles before ceding their excess stores to Ronnie and Eckland, and then start a two-week southeast leg into the Eternity Mountain Range, sighted and named by Lincoln Ellsworth, but as yet untrod by human feet. Ronnie and Eckland would take into the Eternity Range on a southwest heading and extend their surveying and geologising as far as their supplies could support them. Eckland's diary recounts a rare win for the penguins as they set off, and I quote him here in full. I'd just completed lashing the canvas covers of the sledges when I saw a penguin waddling toward the dogs, who were all hitched up waiting for my command of Yake. Apparently, Mr. Penguin was bent on paying a friendly social call. I grabbed the G-pole at the front of the sledge, but stopping the team was impossible. They were after that penguin as one dog. Taken somewhat by surprise, he skidded away as fast as he could go on his short legs, then flopped to his breast and skidded over the snow by paddling madly with legs and flippers. For about 300 yards, he kept ahead of the team, which was now in high gear, while I, on my skis, hung on like the tail on a comet. When they caught up to the penguin, old Grub, my lead dog, put on his brakes, but the rest of the team couldn't stop. They piled up on top of each other like a football team on top of a ball carrier. Immediately, an epic battle was on, 
and the harness was in a mad tangle around the snapping, snarling dogs. I was in it too, swearing, cuffing, jerking them apart. From under the thickest of the heap slid a very indignant penguin. Totally unharmed, he waddled away a short distance, then turned, and I don't know who cursed the dogs more eloquently, he or I. The sledges camped their first night at Red Rock Ridge and finished their sea ice traverse the following day, starting the relaying shenanigans up to the wordy ice shelf. They made slow but steady headway up the glacier, crossing the multitude of crevasses either by roping the team in or by letting the dogs and sledges cross ahead of the men, who then hauled themselves back up to the sledges on a trailing rope. Eklund recounts that the hard yards and frightening near misses in the crevasse field frayed otherwise amicable nerves and that he and Don Hilton, previously a close friend, nearly came to blows over dogs drinking from Don's water. Not dogs generally, but particular dogs. Don found he could hang a bucket of snow from the back of his sledge and the direct sunlight would melt it into a refreshing thirst quencher without anyone need to set up a primus stove. Old Grub worked out what was going on and snuck a drink on several occasions with no adverse response. Two Malamute pups, Old and Colonel, saw the game and followed Old Grub's example, and Don lost it, tramping back to tell Eklund off over the matter. He didn't mind sharing with Old Grub because he liked the dog, but the pups could not drink his water. Hilton wrapped one of the Malamutes on the nose, and it was Eklund's turn to take umbrage. You don't discipline another team's dogs, apparently. The two men seethed at each other for two days, before finding some new perspective on the matter and enjoying a laugh over it. Knowles and Hilton turned back at the top of the wordy, making good time on the return following in fresh sled tracks that provided a good surface to work over and leading them to already tested crevasse bridges. Downhill run on a light sledge, taking them back to home comforts. Nice. After resting up a couple of days, they added Harry Darlington to their number and set out again, on the 19th of November, the trio departed with 22 dogs for the Weddell Sea coast. Two teams of 11 dogs towing three sledges, two in tandem, carrying food for 70 days. They used the northeast glacier to crest the peninsula divide and replenished their food at the depot laid at the top of Bill's Gulch, descending to Mobile Oil Inlet and the Hollick Kenyon Plateau by way of Trail Inlet. Landmarks first sighted and named by Wilkins were visited, triangulated and located by Sexton, while the terrain was geologised and examined for biology, largely turning up in lichen form as per usual. These first visitors to the western Weddell coast encountered leads of open water and killed a Weddell seal therein to feed the dogs. Cape Isleson, reached on the 16th of December, marked the furthest south Wilkins and Isleson flew in 1928 and Hearst Island, passed on the 17th, marked the furthest south that Wilkins and Isleson sighted during their flight a decade earlier. Beyond that, they were free to name the landscape as they saw fit, and this they did, adding United States nomenclature to the charts in uncontestable style, with rounds of angles, photographs and geological samples. They didn't reach their ultimate goal of the corner, the point where the Weddell Sea coast meets the Filchner ice shelf. 
with the dogs showing the strain of their exertions, they decided they needed to turn back while they still had some reserve gas in the tank. They returned to East Base on January the 17th after covering 683 miles on the trail. Two dogs short of the original complement, but otherwise, but otherwise in good fettle. Meanwhile, the Southern Trail Party couldn't find the cache laid the previous summer. The bamboo marker and flag didn't show, likely having broken off in a winter storm. While not short on food or fuel, the sledges needed another Primus and radio set in order to hold to the planned split to garner maximum geography and geology. They radioed East Base and requested a new cache, and with the weather finally allowing flying, the East Base Curtis Condor arrived with the equipment, a boost to the vittles, radio telegrams from home, and a lemon meringue pie from Archie Tiny Hill, who'd been experimenting with penguin eggs and wanted to share the results with everyone. Not my favourite dessert, but I'll eat it if there's nothing else going, and I can only imagine it tasted ambrosial after a good spell on sledging rations. The Condor conducted aerial photographic surveys, ground truthed by the sledge parties, and both the sledges and aviators enjoyed the thought that if anything went badly awry with their own efforts, their counterparts would be able to provide some semblance of support. On the 21st of November, after cresting a long and crevasse-free ridge at almost 5,000 feet above sea level, the two parties swapped some dogs around, redistributed some stores on the sledges, shot the five weakest dogs, shared a final meal in company, steaks brought up by the aerial resupply and saved for this special occasion, and parted ways. From Dead Dog Camp, Dyer, Healy and Musselman headed southeast into the Eternity Range, while Ronnie and Eklund went south and then west into as yet unseen territory. Joe Healy recorded disquiet in the lead up to the separation. He loved his dogs and his team worked better than most, drawing attention and praise from Finn Ronnie. Healy didn't particularly like the Prickly 2IC and didn't want his team broken up to serve the longer proposed sledging journey, but knew he didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. From Healy's diary, November 21st, 1940. Finn at last has his wish. He took Ben, Chick and Tarzan on Eklund's team with him so he could shoot them and gave me some of Eklund's team. He was not man enough to come and tell me himself, but wrote it out and gave it to Dyer. He would not even ask me which of the dogs left I would like to kill or keep, but shot five of them and then called Glenn aside at the last minute to tell him that Zoe, one of the few left of my original team, must be shot. He was afraid, I guess, that I would shoot some of the useless dogs from Eklund's team, who he has praised all winter. I told Ashley before we left camp there would be few of my dogs come back. I just signed their death certificates when I let them out in front and break trail with the heaviest load all through the soft snow in the crevasse area. If I can stretch the food, I will still take Zoe back, although Finn will probably shoot her in camp anyway. So Finn proves what he said in Boston by shooting off all the team. I don't see how a man can travel in the solitude and immenseness of this country and still be as petty and mean as Ronnie. While out in the Eternity Range, 
Healy noted a radio transmission from Richard Black at East Base that Ronnie should not shoot any more dogs, that at least one of the three of his team the Southern Party took from him might make it home again. With 18 days of food and 11 dogs on their one sledge, Dyer's Southeastern Survey Party made tracks even in poor weather. Determined to make the most of their opportunity, in spite of hauling fewer stores than originally planned. The terminal can with its gooey centre of claimant documentation and laid on the 28th of November, disappointed Dyer but still lay well beyond any previously trod trail or seen sites. With no fat in the system they couldn't afford to lose a day on the way home without the delay costing them dogs. Fortunately they ran fast in clear conditions and returned to East Base on the 11th of December with all dogs still pulling well, the only invalid in the party being Dyer, after he sprained an ankle and tore a ligament when he broke a ski binding, forcing him to ride the sledge for the final three days on trail. Meanwhile, and keep in mind that everything at East Base is happening meanwhile in relation to West Base, and that's all meanwhile relative to what's going on in the USA, and that's all meanwhile relative to what's happening in Europe and the Western Pacific. Two days of good sledging at altitude and Ronnie and Eklund came abreast of the Batterbee Mountains. A Condor deposited depot lay on King George VI Sound below, so the duo depoted most of their materials and headed downhill. The terrain proved treacherous with the worst crevassing they experienced to date, and after three weeks of heavy pulling, the strain was showing on the dogs with snow blindness affecting at least two animals, though this didn't prevent them pulling their weight, and bite wounds from the inevitable fights taking longer to heal than normal. They reached the Batterby Cache on the 3rd of December and made the light sledge heavy again. They headed toward Alexander the First Land across the smooth sea ice, making good time, but noticed the ice surface became salty and spotted snow petrels overhead, both signs hinting at open water in the offing. While crossing an area of pressure ice, one of the sledges went through the surface and submerged. Ronnie and Eklund spent a fraught hour retrieving and unpacking it to check on the radio set therein. It still worked. Huzzah! They headed up a scarp and carried due south, keeping an eye out for a landing site for the Condor that they might call in a resupply and act as a ground control point for further aerial surveying. On the 11th, the pair reached and climbed a thousand foot nun attack and surveyed previously unseen ground out to 75 miles distance in almost every direction. The elation at this Balboa moment was tempered when Eklund put down Tarzan, one of the dogs from Joe Healy's team, and a veteran of Bird's second expedition, having been a puppy at Little America too. A melancholy experience for the monkey, but well received fresh meat for the dogs one of which pulled its stake that night to trench of the entrails and to compete with the skewers to finish what meat the butchering left on the carcass. That Finn Ronnie raised Mike from puppyhood at Little America too, drew out a greater show of empathy when Mike shot his tether and tried to work out a grudge against Chief. Chief opened up one of Mike's paws and the dog couldn't walk on it, let alone pull. Ronnie let Mike ride the sledge while conditions held fair. On the 17th of December, they were stopped by an open lead of seawater. A surprise, as they'd measured their altitude as 100 feet above sea level and hadn't realised they weren't over solid ground. While this was faintly unsettling, it did clear up an Antarctic geographic misconception. 
Alexander I land was an island. What Bellingshausen thought continental, while still very large, was separated from the continental mass of Antarctica by the sea. Receiving this news over the radio, the east-based geographers were eager to overfly the area and add to the map the two men and 14 dogs were generating. But poor weather kept the condor grounded. Herbert Dorsey's weather reports for the aviators off the back of his extensive data analysis, on paper, with a pen. Because computers were people back then. If the condor couldn't reach and resupply them, the party neared the end of its tether. But the distant water sky and the knowledge that each footfall carried them into previously untrod space, and that each vantage point offered unseen vistas, propelled Ronnie and Eklund onward until their provisions couldn't take many days of blizzard-mediated pinning down without a drastic shortening of rations. Penguin tracks and seal sign indicated they might at least get some freshies for the dogs in the near future, but you can't eat tracks. The dogs' feet showed the cost of working over the sharp, salty ice surfaces, and Ronnie and Eklund lamented their choice not to bring dog moccasins. On the 21st, they sighted open water. Camped two miles from the shore, Eklund and Ronnie listened to the daily radio sked and heard the flight out their way was a go. They slept and awoke to more radio news that the Condor landed at Batterby Cache before turning back due to inclement weather. They couldn't extend any further. They deposited a claim slip in a can. A brief attempt to head west to break new trail en route back to Stonington met a deep and steep-sided inlet over 400 metres wide. Instead, they retraced their previous steps, which the dogs responded to well, achieving 32 miles in a day over their old trail. On Christmas Eve, the men listened to Christmas carols on the radio and worried about their dogs' feet. Some process of melting and sublimation and refreezing formed a surface of tiny inverted icicles, and the dog's paws were tearing up. Eklund gave up his mittens to the forepaws of the worst affected, and this made some difference for several hours. But with five of the dogs losing condition fast, the outlook took on a bleak aspect. Sandy, the mitten recipient, couldn't stand up on the 26th, and received the post-Christmas bullet. On the 29th, Chick and Skippy copped their bullets, while 450 miles of trail still lay before the party. The equation still passed out of survival, but the margins began looking slender. 75 miles out from Batterby Cache, they ditched a large proportion of the dog pemmican, assured they could replace it and afford all involved a long rest, so long as the dogs could be nursed that far. Halfway there, Ole and Ben stopped pulling, so Eklund let them off their traces. To Ronnie's dismay, they had to remove Mike from his ambulance. His paw never healed, and carrying his weight was costing the other dogs what health they still possessed. Ben and Mike laid down and went to sleep together, making it easier for Eklund to shoot them. Ole returned to his place in the team, which is enough to bring a big softy dog lover to tears, damn it. Eklund clipped him in again and the party carried forward. The surface improved and daily distances held good, but the dog's feet were getting worse. On the 2nd of January, 
while Ronnie dried himself after breaking through a thin ice crust over a melt pool and going through to his knees. Eklund climbed a nearby peak where he saw snow petrels wheeling about. He found the birds nesting burrows among the rocks and got himself well covered in the oily vomitus the adults squirt at anything approaching too close to their eggs as he collected specimens to demonstrate the species' nesting habits extended 350 miles further south than previously recorded. The things scientists will do for a little data, or even just a datum. The peak comprised sedimentary strata, distinct from the largely igneous and metamorphic material he'd seen on the mainland, and Eklund found several specimens of fossil ferns. Back on trail, Ray, another former Little America 2 pup, fell in her traces, the pad of one foot completely worn away. Bullet for her. Arctic, one of Ray's pups, couldn't get up. Bullet for him. The 5th of January. The pressure ice shifted a good deal in their absence, and Ronnie had to pick a new route. Both sledges caught the dunking in this pass, and the radio set's second immersion affected the transmitter. They managed to let East Base know they were working seven badly depleted dogs, and while likely to reach the Batterby Cache, they needed to rest up there. Pilot Snow responded that they should wait there for the Condor to collect the entire party, and this held great appeal. Besides their own exhaustion and the state of the remaining dogs' feet, the remaining ground was already surveyed in. There was no geographic gain in covering it again. They reached the cache that evening and made camp fit to give the dogs some time to heal and heaped the food high for all mouths. Eklund began making boots for the dogs' paws out of canvas cut from a sledge tank and sewn to shape with the sailmaker's needle and palm. The twice seawater soaked transmitter gave up. Eklund dismantled the hand crank generator and cleaned the components, but couldn't raise a spark. The salt water did its thing and Ronnie and Eklund could receive, but not respond. They listened to the daily radio sked and heard conversations between East Base and Harry Darlington out on the Waddell Sea Coast, asking after them, but couldn't contribute to the dialogue. Several times they heard hopeful talk of a Condor flight, but without their own input on local weather, Snow and Purse had to interpolate off the conditions at Stonington and never got the relief flight moving due to the uncertainty. By the 15th, with ships en route to clear East Base out, Eklund declared, My beard is long enough right now. Let's make a break for it. They cannibalised their sledges to make one triple runner unit, hoping the 50% extra spread on the point load might prevent further dunkings. They discarded everything but the bare minimum of food, fuel and equipment, and a small stash of fossils. The first effort back on trail covered 24 miles on the ice in the sound. Eklund found the canvas boots provided some benefit to the dogs, but where some accepted the footwear, others worried at it with their teeth until it came off. If Eklund or Ronnie were quick enough to spot these discardings, they could get the boot back in place, but if they missed a trick, Chief, who wore his boots without concern, ate anyone else's boots that came within his reach, which is, perhaps, the most husky thing I ever read about. Out in the middle of the sound, working over a two-inch thick blue ice crust, refrozen over a polenia, on top of the sea ice, the radio receiver gave the pair unsettling news. 
The ship's predicted arrival landed in mid-February. With two sound dogs and five others in various states ranging from pulling their own weight through to badly torn up feet, and less than a month before the ships arrived and likely departed in short order, they didn't have much fat in the system. 100 miles away, the wordy cache promised the astounding delights of tinned beans, but the predicament their push to the open coast now placed them in dulled the thrill of leguminous anticipation. On January 19th, 50 miles from the wordy cache, they heard the encouraging news that in light of their silence, Richard Black was sending fresh dogs out to meet them. Listening into the midnight sked, they heard Purse and Lamplaw going back and forth about an imminent flight. Purse was transmitting during the takeoff run, and Eklund and Ronnie heard the engines roaring, followed by a loud crash and Purse's voice. We've had an accident. The Condor was trying to take off from the Glacier airfield and put one of its skis down a crevasse running parallel to the aircraft's run. In the resulting violence, a propeller cut one of the skis in half, and the port lower wing received some damage from resting on the crevasse lip. Five minutes after the crash broadcast, Richard Black came on the radio and broadcast that the flight he'd tried to send to Ronnie and Eklund's aid wasn't coming, that he was worried by their silence, and that he was arranging a party of five men with fresh dogs travelling along the spine of the peninsula because the summer thaw made coastal sledging too dangerous near the Debenhams. Not being in as bad a shape as the valid and sound but type 1 erroneous thinking at East Base led their leader to conclude, Ronnie and Eklund determined to redouble their efforts and meet the relief as close to Stonington as they could manage, adding man-hauling harnesses to the tracery so they could aid their ailing dogs in the ascent up to the wordy cache, which they reached on the 22nd. After indulging in the same fantasies as any number of their Antarctic predecessors operating on necessarily or accidentally dull menus, Eklund and Ronnie surprised themselves on reaching the cornucopia by craving pemmican. They dug out a tin of soup and a tin of the revered beans and lit the primus, but after gulping down and barely tasting the vegetable soup, they found their mastication slowing to a halt halfway through their serve of beans. Ronnie began rummaging. Pemmican? Eklund asked. Yes, I think I'll have a little to top off, Ronnie confirmed. Put some in for me too. They threw away their beans and made and enjoyed a hoosh. Figuring they were six days out from East Base, the wordy descent caused some recalculating. The crevasses they crossed two and a half months earlier were either open-mouthed or bridged by badly slumped snow crusts after the summer melt. Tracks of previous parties passing disappeared into space where formerly sound snow bridges no longer existed. Two days of trying and failing to find an alternate route, and then committing to crossing thin, narrow crevasse bridges with weak dogs and only one sledge. This last factor limiting the options to rope in and thereby provide a safety net against breaking through the crusts. On the 23rd, they caught sight of the terra firma islands in Marguerite Bay giving them a mental boost. Then, the radio sked on the 24th told of the hurricane winds that battered the relief sledges, sending them back to the island to fetch new tents. Feeling the home stretch beneath their feet and making better progress once clear of the crevasse fields, the southern party weren't distressed by the news and felt good about each day bringing them closer to completing their foray unaided. On the 26th, they reached the head of the Nini Glacier, 
36 miles to run. Eklund fed the dogs human pemmican, figuring they'd earned a dietary treat, albeit one comprising a very slight shift in fat to protein ratios. On January 27th, Eklund's 32nd birthday, the relief party joined the southern party 23 miles shy of Stonington Island. Richard Black, Paul Knowles, Don Hilton and Joseph Healy set out to the aid of their colleagues with only the vaguest idea of where they might look for them and with the ships barely two weeks away from what was likely a quick turnaround. That took some gumption. They rearranged the dog teams to ensure the beleaguered seven long distances would make it to East Base and carried on through the final 23 miles, reaching the Nini Fjord by 2200 hours and reaching East Base at 0200 on the 28th. Eklund concludes his account of the sledging journey with a sombre nod of gratitude to the eight dogs he and Ronnie euthanised on the trail. If there is such a thing as Dog Valhalla, I know they will be there because they worked until they dropped in their tracks. Ronnie and Eklund spent 84 days traversing 1,264 miles of crevassed territory, allowing Condor flights to extend even further into the hinterland with a degree of geographic certainty absent from Wilkins and Ellsworth's efforts further to the east. With no single big goal set for the Curtis Condor, and no bird urging that the heavy lifters be husbanded to preserve them for a big ticket item, the Condor's use in landing and caching food and replacement equipment for the dog teams made the sledging parties far more successful than those in previous US efforts. Imagine that aircraft on a bird expedition being used for practical purposes instead of just ferrying birds drunken ass all over the continent while he waved a broken sextant vaguely skyward. Given the east-based condor dipped its feet in a crevasse on the 19th of January, breaking its ski off the undercarriage pedestal, Bird might have been correct to feel concerned that using the larger aircraft for practical purposes in Antarctic conditions did diminish the likelihood they could serve his higher purposes. But keep in mind the dogs the trail parties of Bird's previous expeditions euthanised because of this big ticket prettiness. The East Base Aviation Hard Cases erected derricks by which to hoist the Condor out of the crevasse that prevented it flying out to Ronnie and Eklund's relief, and fabricated replacement parts for the damaged ski gear and repaired the warped wing. Snow and Purse made a test flight on the 1st of February, and while not factory fresh, the Condor proved serviceable, which is an important detail for when I get back to talking about East Base, but for now, it's time to turn the focus back to the Ross Sea. The Bear reached the Bay of Wales on the 11th of January, and Little America 3 began reloading itself onto the ship. The North Star arrived on the 24th. A dog team broke away from its sledge during the excitement of the loadout and disappeared into the wilderness. Five days later, the lead dog, Snooks, turned up, having gnawed her way out of the tracery, but skiers following her track for 40 miles and a reconnaissance by the staggering didn't turn up any sign of the rest of the missing dogs. The 43 canines making the final hauls from West Base to the Barrier Edge went aboard the North Star. Of the transport machinery taken onto the barrier, only the staggering rode the lading hook this time. In the rush to get moving and collect the East Base residents before the already threatening ice conditions saw everyone spending an unplanned winter in Antarctica, the Little Americans left most of the food in place, which didn't matter over much immediately, 
but caused some problems when the ships spent an unexpected month in the offing outside Marguerite Bay, precluded from entry by recalcitrant ice that showed no signs of budging that season and which the ships couldn't push through. The unfortunate situation arose off the back of the British Graham Land Expedition's successes operating in the same waters at the same time of year between 1935 and 1937. Bird and Black took Rymill and Ryder's experience as the mode when they established East Base where they did. The summer of 1941 proved exceptional and the ice just would not break out. The ships repositioned to the Melchior Islands in Dulman Bay and anchored up to save fuel and to await a dramatic shift in the weather and the knock-on effects on the ice conditions or pertinent instructions from the north. A plan to shift the 26 men still ashore to a more accessible site using the Curtis Condor to make two ferrying flights looked workable on paper, but Bird felt torn. He couldn't leave men on site for a second winter without incurring more wrath than he could handle for the unwarranted expense that would place on the departments responsible for the increasingly albatrossic USATAE. But he didn't like to think of everyone piling into the obsolescent biplane already hard worked during its year in the south and repaired with bespoke parts worked up in the machine shop following its various misadventures. No one died on a bird expedition to date and a fiery crash killing at least 14 of his men and a fiery crash killing at least 14 of his men could dent his reputation and future prospects even worse than leaving everyone in place. Oh, what's a narcissistic megalomaniac to do? Head south to take charge in person is the answer to that question, in Bird's mind at least, and he made a start for Punta Arenas via scheduled Pan-American flights. He talked the US Navy into sending two aircraft from Panama to meet him in Chile and to carry him south from there so he could join the bear and direct the rescue. I don't know if the United States Antarctic Service Committee agreed to all of this because they thought it was a good idea or because it was better than having Bird at his most agitated while Lieutenant Cruzan handled the situation as any lieutenant worth their salt should be expected to do at least as well as a rear admiral who got his flag status off the back of politics and influence rather than experience at sea. Either way, they signalled to Cruzan to act as he saw fit while Bird was in transit, and he did. On the 15th of March, after taking the dogs and dog drivers aboard the Bear in case they were needed in a rescue sledging journey, Cruzan sent the North Star to Punta Arenas where the rest of the West Base personnel could disembark and the ship could vittle and bunker fuel for itself and take aboard coal and stores for a second winter at East Base should further attempts at relief fail. Cruzan repositioned the Bear to Mickelson Island and put ashore a team to mark out and flatten a runway on the glacier covering the island's ridgeline. The tired and battered Condor offered the only means to get base staff out that season. Urgency prompted prompt solutions, and Collier, Pullen, Snow and Purse prepped their charge for three final flights. All hands other than the two pilots volunteered to take the second tranche evacuation, knowing the state of the aircraft and the uncertainties involved in a landing in a new place made their stranding for a second winter a higher than happy likelihood. Black determined the personnel likely to prove most valuable and to get along best in a second winter and held them back. The Condor carried the first Stonington Island contingent to Mickelson Island, landing safely on the recently cleared and delineated glacial runway, 
the east base personnel had to lower themselves down a precipitous rock and ice cliff face on ropes to reach the whaleboat waiting below before the relieved men met their relief ship. After the second flight, the Curtis Condor was abandoned on site with no effort to winterize it or dog it down against the storms that likely smashed it into the nearby mountainsides and dropped it into the waterways, so it's probably still thereabouts, corroding and acting as an artificial reef for marine invertebrates, which is sort of sad, but not much, because the Curtis Condor doesn't warrant much veneration, let alone conservation and upkeep in a museum. Far sadder was the fate of the dogs left behind at East Base, and I find it hard to work up this part of the episode. There's already been a lot of unhappy doggy death recounted. Half of the East Base dogs, faithful servants, happy clowns, trusting companions, received a bullet. The other half, who might yet prove useful to get East Base personnel out to meet the ship if the Condor Gambit didn't work, or might prove crucial to human survival if the East Base residents needed to spend another winter on site, were staked out on the dog lines with three 50-pound cases of dynamite wired to an alarm clock geared to detonate the explosives around two hours after the Curtis Condor might be expected to return if things went badly awry en route to, or at, Mickelson Island. Things didn't go awry, so the Condor never returned, so no one ever arrived back at the dog lines to disarm and remove the canine time bomb. The thought of lovely and trusting doggos ending as red smears on the snow and a cloud of aerosolized protein is upsetting. Jenny Darlington's account of her time at Stonington Island during the Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition cites several dog carcasses up the glacier in the aviator's hut, suggesting at least some of those animals earmarked for detonation escaped the fate to die of hypothermia or thirst some days after the last condor flight. Seven puppies made it out, rescued by dog lovers who all likely thought they were the only ones breaking the rules. I know the total because of a telegram Cruzen sent north, reporting the number, and requesting a reprieve from repercussions on the behalf of the dog-loving miscreants in question. But I can only pinpoint General Hand Harry Darlington as one of those wrath-riskers who snubbed his superiors by stuffing a two-week-old doggo, a special one with mismatched eyes allegedly held in the mouth of its mother, Darlington's lead dog, Sadie, as he turned to look at his charges one last time while the condor sat idling up his jumper shortly before boarding. Darlington's dog received the name Chinook and will return to the ice coffee narrative in Harry Darlington's company, returning to Stonington Island as one of five Antarctic veterans taking part in the Ronnie Antarctic Research Expedition. See episode 10 episodes from this one or thereabouts. Pilot Snow gave the Condor the herbs but couldn't get it airborne on the available space. He ordered all non-clothing items chucked out the door to lighten the load and out went the emergency supplies and survival gear while the engine burnt off some weight in the form of surplus fuel for an hour. Snow gave it another attempt. This time the obsolescent and battered machine got some air beneath its skis and carried the second party northward. Ashley Snow and Earl Purse received the distinguished flying cross for their efforts during this fraught finale. I don't know what happened to Polo's sewer. Maybe someone took the cat home. Maybe Polo copped a bullet. Maybe one of the dogs caught up with the feline in the winter dark and ate it. The rapid departure and condor flight load limits 
required East Base occupants leave their belongings and equipment behind. In the science hut, Richard Black wrote on the wall, Materials abandoned in the base are the property of the United States government or of individual expedition members. Please report to the Department of the Interior any articles used. If possible to remove part of valuable items, the above agency should be notified and instructions will be given for shipment to Washington, D.C., USA. Good luck. Richard B. Black, East Base, U.S. Antarctic Service, March 22, 1941. The only thing Richard Black carried with him on the final Condor flight were the 18 claim forms filled out by pilots and dog teams. Carrying north the details of every claiming ceremony the East Base residents performed, and noting the location and material deposited each time the East Base occupants depoted something. Lots of dogs piss on fence posts, but not all of them return with carefully annotated records of which fence posts receive what quantities of piss. Usatay didn't do what everyone involved hoped it might, but the seeds of what might become a serious and seriously contemplated US Antarctic territorial claim were sown. When the Bear and the North Star arrived in the USA in April 1941, Black presented the claim forms to the Department of the Interior and they were then forwarded to the State Department for appraisal after the war played out. Being a government-funded expedition, Bird couldn't profit from his exploits as he did in previous outings. He didn't return with the same level of debt as his previous projects lumbered on him either but without any financial carrot to stir his creative juices or to prompt him to sit down with a ghostwriter, he never wrote an account of the Usasei, and he never took to the lecture circuit to promote its outcomes. Even the usual film release couldn't happen, but in this instance because of Ennis Helm reneging on the agreement that all material generated during the expedition voyages be handed into the Department of the Interior. Helm shot past the deadline to get the edited film to the department, and when someone chased him up on the matter, they found him in an Oklahoma prison. Helm hid the film before starting his sentence for an offence I can't find reference to, and offered to sell Bird its location for a substantial fee. Bird didn't want to negotiate, and decided to wait for Helm to drop his price, but figured the expedition footage couldn't hope to compete at the box office when the life-and-death dramas of the war played out in the newsreels. It turns out the film Helm cut together wasn't much chop anyway. An uninspiring pastiche from a lacklustre expedition. Oh, for the glory days when the world hung on birds' Antarctic words. There is a film of the expedition released by the Department of the Interior, but the opening credits indicate it was pieced together from the personal footage of the ship's crews rather than Helm. It makes for a good watch in light of our mutual interest in Antarctic history, but I can see why no one backed it to vie well against the newsreels of 1941. Lots of crossing the equator shenanigans and a long sequence about the North Star's visit to Pitcairn Island and then Rapa Island on the way to New Zealand give it the home movie feel, colour film being the main element setting it apart from similar documents of the preceding era. Government press releases got the word out but in a grey, governmental form, where previous iterations of Bird's PR machinery worked every last iota of public concern and empathy out of every possible angle the expedition offered. 
With the world devolving into total war, the already limited glamour of a largely unexceptional expedition didn't register much interest in the US public imagination. And while that's entirely understandable, it didn't assuage Richard Byrd's constant and gnawing need for adoration and applause. He was a borderline has-been at the start of the 1930s, and the start of the 1940s saw a further order of magnitude diminishment in his public and political cachet. Robert English wrote a dry, factual account of the expedition's exploits and achievements, drawing on radio reports received during the 13 months spent in the South, and published it in Geographical Review, dotting the official I's and crossing the official T's without letting on about the territorial aims of the project. Richard Black agitated that the expedition stood to hold greater international credibility as an indication of the US knowledge of and ability to administer over the areas studied if the scientific publications arising from the work in the South received some support through the analysis and write-up, but Congress refused to make further funds available until after the remit of the first United States Antarctic Service financial tranche ended and the remaining funds were assessed. Black turned to the Department of the Interior to request that four cartographers and three scientists go on their books to ensure the work received prompt and thorough attention and cited the 1939 map of Antarctica published by the Australian government and giving precedence to Commonwealth names, regardless of who first discovered the landmarks that wore those names, as a good reason to get the analyses and workups moving ASAP. The work kicked off, but the increasing tension deriving from and national demands in response to the war made progress slow and fitful. By mid-1942, with the US committed to war in Europe and in the Pacific, the ten remaining employees operating under the United States Antarctic Service remit were increasingly diverted to war work, as you would expect of cartographers when your nation is fighting in previously poorly known territories. Paul Seipel, commissioned as a captain in the US Army, struggled to make headway on the Antarctic commitments Byrd left him in charge of while the nation bent its back to the fights. The committee looked to Alton Wade to oversee the scientific publication program. After an ignominious start arising from his failure to bring together a coherent scientific program to connect the otherwise disparate efforts at East Base and West Base, Wade's relationship with the committee soured further during his year in the South. With little funding and no love for the committee, Wade pissed off to the Arctic as commanding officer of the Greenland Ice Cap Detachment of the United States Army Air Corps. The National Academy of Sciences handballed the scientific publications hot potato to the American Philosophical Society, which held a symposium in November 1941, at which a dozen scientific papers arising from the United States Antarctic Service expedition received their first airing. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor shortly thereafter put a break on the peer review and publication process, but eventually 27 scientific papers arose from the expedition covering topics within geology, glaciology, meteorology, geomagnetism, auroral observation, seismic studies, cosmic ray studies, biology, physiology, and long-distance radio transmission, filling a 400-page special edition of the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society in mid-1945, which is pretty fleet of foot, considering a lot of data from Lieutenant Charles Wilkes' XX and Byrd's two previous Antarctic expeditions still haven't been worked up and published. Commander Robert English did manage to publish 
sailing directions for Antarctica in 1943, a pilotage guide geared to diminish the international influence of the British Hydrography Officer's 1930 publication, Antarctic Pilot, rushed to press ahead of the end of Douglas Mawson's Banzari in order to press the British historical narrative regarding Antarctic discovery and management. The intended second edition, incorporating Mawson's most recent discoveries and names, and explicitly extolling British sovereignty, never arose, and the US publication capitalised on the 13-year interval, adding a lot of coastline missing from the previous document, albeit all but drawn on in crayon for all the accuracy and precision involved, and changing a lot of names to give prominence and tacit primacy in discovery to American interests. Bird tried to get Roger Hawthorne a committee appointment as expedition historian, but Seipel and Black railed against this apparent gazumping of their perceived right to tell their own stories. Bird relented enough that Seipel would write up goings-on at West Base and Black would recount events at East Base, so long as Hawthorne could edit the copy and ensure the two documents meshed. Concerned that without someone writing the connecting scenes, Richard, Evelyn and Bird might only make the shortest of cameos in the junior officer's narratives. This turned out to be an unwarranted concern since the history of the United States Antarctic Service expedition fell by the wayside as American involvement in the war ramped up, and the official integrated account of the USASAE remains unwritten to this day. The expedition accurately triangulated the positions of 58 previously unmapped mountain peaks, mapped 700 nautical miles of previously unseen coastline, filled in gaps between the Beardmore and Live glaciers, and discovered the western outlet of George VI Bay, finally definitively defining Alexander I land as an island. The first colour photographs of Antarctica might seem small cheese given I've published more and more colourful images of Antarctica as addenda in the blog posts, but the chemistry involved in making emulsions that could selectively alter in response to different light frequencies was a big deal in its day and warrants mention as being almost as significant a first as the first photographic images of Antarctica were in their day aboard the Belgica or the Southern Cross, depending on whether you're fussed about above and below the circle distinctions and adjacent to or on the continent distinctions. Which I'm not particularly, but which I'm compelled to mention because the people who wrote most of the books I draw my material from are almost universally fussed about such matters. Science, the poor cousin to territorial claiming rights, came up chumps in the wake of the expedition Professor Alton Wade proved a tenacious researcher in spite of the lack of support the scientific program received, and his students and colleagues always spoke most highly of the huge kick his mentorship gave their own careers. But Wade's key contributions to Antarctic research lay in the future, with better coordinated and executed expeditions, once the flurry to get the USASA up and running calmed down, and once Bird got sidelined from tangible influence over Antarctic operations. The single biggest outcome of the brief existence of the United States Antarctic Service was its announcement of the scale of US ambitions in Antarctica to the entire world, and as such, it's actually one of the most important expeditions in all of Antarctic history, even though it's one of the least well known. The United States' persistent refusal to acknowledge territorial claims in the South showed up as a stark hypocrisy in light of what the USASA set out to achieve and everyone paying attention felt on notice to get south with alacrity as soon as the opportunity arose, or else whatever acronym arose as a successor to the United States Antarctic Service 
would expand a fraction of the tremendous wealth accruing in US coffers off the back of becoming the arsenal of democracy, kicking the goals Richard Bird shot for and missed, not because of sound goalkeeping, because there was no one in goal, but because he was crap at anything other than self-promotion and wheedling and headed south after insufficient preparation. In Bird's own words, as penned by Paul Seipel trying to help his hero out in preparing for a radio speech Bird never actually gave, the expedition constituted, quote, probably the most important with which I have ever been connected, unquote, and sought, quote, to claim for the United States large areas of territory that have previously been discovered by Americans. By any metric applied by any observer, the United States Antarctic Service expedition failed in that goal and, by failing to give the United States the vaunted connection between past discoveries and future ambitions, did constitute the most important thing Richard Evelyn Bird ever did in Antarctica, though not in the way Paul Seipel couched it in Bird's own words. Many of the USASA personnel returned to Antarctica in later projects, but George Gibbs did not. He served as a gunner aboard United States Navy vessels during the war, and survived the sinking of the USS Atlanta, spending a night in open waters before he and the other thousand survivors were rescued, leaving 2,000 of their shipmates in their Pacific grave. He retired from naval service, a chief petty officer, and went into human resources in an era before that euphemism came to the fore of personnel hiring and firing. He worked to set up his local branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People and broke the colour barrier at his local Elks Club. What little I can find out about him makes him sound like the sort of role model I need to inform my children about, and I'm really hoping his daughter manages to publish the book she's working on about his life. Women beat Gibbs to the ice, but not by much, and the exclusivity that kept anyone other than white men out of Antarctica, and which still gives white men preferential opportunities there, is slated to receive some attention soon. That script has been dogging me for years, and keeps getting longer the more I read, but it's almost at the point I finalise my notes and press record, regardless of knowing there's more to know, which is how most of my final drafts come about. Joe Healy also didn't return to Antarctica. During the war, he served in the United States Army Air Corps under Bernd Balkan in Greenland, where his dog-driving prowess made him an invaluable part of search and rescue teams sent out to find aircrew brought down by mechanical failure or navigational error, both common occurrences given the number of aircraft passing east to the European theatre of the war. And I just found out some extra Antarctic-aligned Balkan stuff too. During the war, he ordered the purchase of six Norseman bush planes manufactured in Canada by Nord Duin, a company kicked off by Balkan's former supervisor at Fokker, the same supervisor that spotted Balkan's talent as an aviator and an engineer, and promoted him from the factory floor to the test pilot role. The Nordoyan company, at the point of closing its factory when the order came in, subsequently provided several hundred Norsemen aircraft to the Allied Armed Forces, several of which found post-war utility in Antarctica. After the war, Balkan took part in a test series assessing search and rescue aircraft for the United States Air Force, the name and acronym of the service having changed after the war when the United States Army Air Force broke away from its parent organisation and began operating as an independent entity. The panel Balkan joined was so impressed with the de Havilland Canada Beaver 
that they held sound against US industry protests against and US government reluctance to the purchase of foreign products. US manufacturers forced the Air Force to run a fly-off to demonstrate their own products against the Canadian offering, but the Beaver outperformed every roadblock thrown in its way, the USAF eventually purchasing large numbers of Beavers and employing them effectively, making the US government the largest customer for de Havilland Canada, keeping the company in production long enough that Beaver bush planes became one of the most commonly employed aircraft in Antarctica through the late 1980s and opening up scope for further designs such as the Otter, the Caribou, the Buffalo, the Twin Otter, the Dash 7 and the Dash 8. Otters also served extensively in Antarctica and fleets of Twin Otters and at least one Dash 7 still provide sterling service there today. Burnt Balkan might not be as well remembered as Richard Bird, but his impact on Antarctic aviation, by my measure, reached much further and lasted far longer. If ever nations disregard the Antarctic Treaty and seek to start digging or drilling or establishing military installations south of the 60th parallel, you can expect the USA to make a lot of noise about what Seipel and Black's teams achieved in the year they spent in the south, and for the USA to leap from one of the more obscure to one of the best known historical episodes in the far south. Until such time, the claiming records remain in the safekeeping of the United States Department of State and the US continues to assert that it doesn't recognise anyone's territorial claims in Antarctica. Lampler was killed in an accident during the war. I can't claim I followed everyone's career to completion, and I don't know if other members of the USA were killed in the fighting, but I found a note about Lampler in someone's personal journal. Harry Darlington got into Pensacola with a little help from Richard Bird who got the two years tertiary study requirement waived so that Darlington could train as a naval aviator. He served on naval patrol bombers in the South Atlantic before secondment to the Royal Air Force Coastal Command at around the time they started using Consolidated Liberators in the Battle of the Atlantic. So while I can't find out much about his life between Antarctic sojourns, I suspect he was employed in helping British squadrons adapt to the new and newly complex systems employed in the latest high-performance airframes coming out of the arsenal of democracy. Of the three aircraft to winter in Antarctica in 1940, only the beach Staggerwing returned north. I don't know how it came to be in Australia, but that's where it was when the Australian government impressed civilian aircraft into the Royal Australian Air Force for the duration of the war, and where it experienced a crash that saw it cease flying without actually destroying the airframe completely. It lay outdoors for a long time on someone's property, the fabric skinning rotting away and the wooden framing of the wings warping and cracking in the harsh seasonal shifts. Someone bought the welded steel tube fuselage framework and over the past five years I've been following the most ship of Theseus airframe restoration in all of aviation history as a business called 2024 at Wanaka, New Zealand fabricates new wings and skins the Antarctic veteran with new fabric. It's still some way from flying, but it's a lot further from rusting the dust in the scrub in the back of bumfuck nowhere Australia. Who knows what's in store for the machine's future, and compared to those stagger wings that only ever transported executives about, it's probably the most storied example of its type. The remains of Little America 3 were discovered several times during subsequent expeditions, and the snow cruiser, still awaiting repatriation and its return to the Armour Institute, 
was found to only want some air in the tyres in order to return to the same state of uselessness it possessed when it first arrived in the Bay of Wales. No one's certain, but it's thought the snow cruiser drifted north as part of an iceberg carved from the barrier, evidence of Little America 3 showing as a horizon of trash and dunnage in a large tabular berg slowly departing the Ross Sea in the 1980s. The bear returned to Arctic service during the war, patrolling off the coast of Greenland under Captain Nemo, no shit, making it the oldest US vessel to engage in wartime duties in international waters and one of the final sail-powered vessels to go to war, and it actually captured a German ship engaged in the resupply of German meteorological reporting units on the Greenland coast. Post-war, the bear was turned to Arctic sealing. The famous ship, approaching 90 years old and carrying stories of adventure dating back to the relief of the Greeley expedition, founded and sank off the coast of Nova Scotia while under tow to retirement as a floating restaurant alongside a wharf in Philadelphia. If I was in any way animist, I'd weave some romantic notion into the narrative about the reliable and capable bear disdaining the retirement mapped out for it, but I think it's more a matter of a tired hull while on the more dangerous end of an already difficult open ocean towing operation. Ships sink sometimes. You don't need to introduce supernatural agencies to make the sea a dangerous place to earn your keep. The tank and gun tractor Richard Black slated for return to the USA lay where the USASA abandoned them, and over the years, the snow beneath them melted or, sub or sublimated away. They now lie on their sides among the middens, rusting away the decades. Tank enthusiasts mourn that these now rare machines can't be salvaged and resurrected because of their status as part of the historic monument East Base now constitutes under the Antarctic Treaty. Some people would start a restoration project for the shadow of a machine if it held enough romance or nostalgia value, but it's a matter of Grandad's axe to the nth degree once something's rusted into a single metal mass, no matter how rare the article becomes. Working from blueprints is increasingly the go, as the artefacts of our past break or decay beyond repair, and it's more a feature of Western cultures that we think a Spitfire built from scratch isn't as much a Spitfire as one that flew in the Battle of Britain. Some cultures don't care so much that a building burnt down five times and fell in an earthquake twice. It stands in the same place, built from the same materials, so it's the same building, and I kind of like that mental framework but it doesn't seem to rub off on those around me, leading to some crossed wires in discussions I have among aviation and maritime heritage circles. One result of the formation of the United States Antarctic Service and of the third Birdian Antarctic Expedition was increased Antarctic activity by Argentina, and I'll address that after I learned to read Spanish well enough to draw more information from my Argentine and Chilean published books on the matter than I can currently glean from looking at the pictures. An interesting insight drawn from the materials I generated the script for the United States Antarctic Service episodes from is that it only takes 50 years for what you're doing now to constitute the focus of intense interest and effort for future archaeologists. In 1991, a team surveyed and documented the remnant buildings and materials at Stonington Island with a sort of applied industry and attention to detail as might go into a dig on an Axumite stele field. And it's every bit as fascinating to me, but it does resonate with a fairly diggy joke I made to a member of the Antarctic Heritage Trust in 2005. That being that we could save them a lot of future bother by simply labelling all of our equipment 
applying the best possible conservation methods to make it last for as long as possible, documenting the lot and then sealing our dive hut up to protect the contents from the elements. No need to send anyone to pick over poorly preserved remnants 50 or 100 years later. They didn't see anything even mildly amusing in my admittedly droll offering, but perhaps because that approach to leaving shit behind would put their future selves out of work. It would also prevent us having to rely on logically cantilevered conclusions about life at time X if someone has a document in their hands telling them that I chose that type of dive mask strap in that colour for this reason, and it's backed up by the artefact and an appended cross-referenced label, no one would ever need to work that out from the perished remains of same article sometime further along. A lot of archaeology is trying to work out why people possessed a thing. The reason they left it behind is usually easy to pass out. The thing was either broken or they left in a hurry because of a volcano or barbarian hordes, or because the ship couldn't reach them and they couldn't afford to carry much with them in the attempt to get the fuck out. Not an especially profound insight, but one that occasionally bugs me for no particularly good reason. As the series gradually catches up on the present day, I'm encountering more direct descendants of the people I discuss. Some of them are thrilled that great uncle so-and-so got a mention, and others are distressed that grandpa copped a roasting. I'm not immovable in the opinions I express through this series. I change my mind when someone makes a compelling case that I should, and anyone who feels hard done by by proxy through my treatment of a personal hero can mount a counter-argument and I'll happily read through it or discuss it with them. If they make a sound case, I'll record an interview with them and add it to the series to correct my misapprehensions and offer a sincere apology for getting that aspect of Antarctic history incorrect in my retelling. What won't happen is people won't convince me to hold sacred what they hold sacred simply because they hold it sacred. Once, after I gave a presentation on Sir Ernest Shackleton, an R8 audience member stood and called out, You can't say that he let the Ross Sea party down, he was a great man! My nonplussed reaction at the time was, Okay, he didn't let the Ross Sea party down, I'm, I, I made that bit up for no reason. Which diffused the tension in the moment, but looking back, I think I shouldn't have made light of the call for a retraction. I looked into Sir Ernest's life more than most people do, and had the documents to hand to demonstrate my case that he did let the Ross Sea party down, so why should I defer, even to the tongue-in-cheek extent that I did, to someone's preference for a perfect hero, where a good one will suffice? I've met some of my heroes, and I've taken care to keep the interaction superficial, because I don't want to find out they're assholes that I wouldn't invite into my home. I don't care about their flaws because I don't know about them. I'm sure they have them, but because I don't interact with them other than through their output, those flaws don't colour my appreciation of their work. There's a slim chance that I'll spend time in company with someone I admire a great deal in coming years, and I'm not sure I'm happy about that, because if they turn out to be a drunken misogynist in their time away from the coalface of their work, I'll find it hard to hold on to my love for their art. Likely I could still appreciate the technical aspects but the change in perception of the person can't help but colour the framework in which their work is viewed. I experienced exactly that sort of shift when Peter Garrett, singer with Midnight Oil, took to politics and applied every cliché about Australian politicians and took every cliché about Australian politicians leading from the church pulpit and fucking over the average Australian to heart. 
making his previous musical work denouncing crooked or bigoted politicians ring hollow, no matter how well phrased and sung, or no matter how well Rob Hurst's drumming propelled the songs along. The music hasn't changed. The elements and mix are the same, held in digital fidelity on optical laser compact disc. But the context in which I hear them is different. It's not as great a fall from grace as that suffered by childhood favourite Rolf Harris, but it's also not the graceful holding to form exhibited by any number of people working their groove until obscurity or death removes them from view. Not everyone in my life transformed themselves into something less than they once seemed by their deliberate actions in the way Peter Garrett did. I don't need my heroes to be perfect, but I do need them to be decent human beings. Thanks this episode to Helena Hearn, who provided me with a tranche of 50 images of Stonington Island taken last austral summer, showing me details and dispositions of geography and artefacts that reinforced some parts and nulled others of the imagined version of East Base I drew together from the words of the residents. Take care and appreciate your coffee.